This podcast, normally explicit, is not so today. It's Monday, August 22nd, 2022, from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca, and I ask the question all of America is pondering in light of this story about foodborne illness. Authorities are still searching for the outbreak's cause, but the CDC says most reported eating at a Wendy's restaurant before getting sick, many specifically having sandwiches with romaine lettuce. You're wondering what I am. Who the hell orders the romaine lettuce at Wendy's? Well, of course I did. I was quite disappointed in the radicchio at Hardee's, and I vowed never again. Plus, odd strains of roughage briefly turned me into a Margaret Dumont-type figure. Okay, I get it. The offer of regular shredded lettuce at a fast food joint is essentially the promise of imbibing some limp, wet straw. At least romaine comes with the chance of some crunch, some flavor, and apparently the chance of some intestinal distress. I felt awful. I was sitting there, I was holding my gut, rocking back and forth. NBC quoting Hillary Kaufman, Wendy's patron and possible victim. But in cheerier agricultural news, the country of Colombia is considering an experiment with a plant-based consumable, cocaine. Last month, it is time for a new international convention that accepts that the war on drugs has failed. That was Colombian President Gustavo Petro in his inaugural address. Logical conclusion to that statement, articulated by Felipe Tascon, Colombia's drug czar, a position that, by the way, used to have the word anti implied right before the title, but doesn't now. Tascon said, quote, drug traffickers know that their business depends on it being prohibited. If you regulate it like a public market, the high profits disappear and the drug trafficking disappears. And you know what else disappears? Inhibitions, self-doubt, speed limits, the need for sleep. This can only go well. The Washington Post also quotes Jim Crotty, a former deputy chief of staff at the DEA, who was against this move to legalize cocaine, saying it is not going to get rid of the legal trade. Well, ask the mafia if legalizing sports gambling in any way diminished illegal sports gambling. But Karate continued with his analysis of cocaine legalization in Colombia with the phrase, quote, as we've seen before in Colombia and elsewhere, there's always someone to fill that vacuum. For years, it was Ike Turner, later Tim Allen, filling the vacuum with cocaine made rhinoplasty the most common elective surgery of the 1980s. I've got to think that somewhere between Colombia's attitude toward coke and the USDA's inspection of lettuce, a right amount of laxness can be settled upon. And if that transpires, we will have many fewer people in this hemisphere desperately needing a toot. On the show today, should Republicans run on the top polling issue of threat to democracy or a lower polling issue like economics? Hint, it's a trick question. They should run on not threatening democracy. I will spiel on it for you. But first, the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan did not go well for U.S. interests, did not go well for Western-aligned Afghans frightened of the Taliban. It might not even be going well for the Taliban themselves. But what do the Taliban want? Their ruler, Mullah Hitabullah Abunzanda, is a strange and reclusive figure, and their stated aims aren't particularly of the running an effective country type. Jason Campbell is a RAND researcher and former Defense Department policy wonk. He is here to talk about 
what the Taliban's turn at running Afghanistan all means. This is Jess Betancourt, the host of DNA ID, the only true crime podcast that exclusively covers cases solved using forensic genealogy. DNA ID goes behind the headlines to answer your questions about this remarkable new crime-solving tool, how it works, how cases are selected, why the cases were unsolved for so long, and how the justice system is addressing it. I include input from law enforcement to give you the inside scoop that we all crave with a straightforward, no-nonsense delivery. You can find DNA ID on any podcast platform. Episodes come out weekly on Mondays. Do you know that there is a world leader who has not been photographed for 30 years? North Korea is called the Hermit Kingdom, but Kim Jong-un, that guy loves the camera. I'm talking about a head of state who has the powers of the state to tax and jail and wage war. There are maybe some voice recordings of this guy within the last couple years. All right, maybe it becomes less surprising when I tell you that the country is Afghanistan. And I'm talking about Hibatullah Akunzada, the ruler of the Taliban, and now the head of state, the ruler of Afghanistan. We know how Afghanistan is going for the U.S. After the U.S.'s withdrawal there, the United States froze funds. It wasn't surprising because the government went back on all the promises they ever made to even modestly relent on their oppression of women. And according to reports, which we're going to get more into, uh, Akunzada was the person who decreed that there would be no secondary education for girls. Uh, he, he decreed that the burqa would come back, and he seemingly is decreeing the warlike path that Afghanistan is on now. I wanted to check in on how it's going for the country, the citizens, the Taliban. Joining me now is Jason Campbell. He's a policy researcher at RAND. He served as country director for Afghanistan in the office of the Secretary of Defense for Policy from uh, June 2016 through September 2018th. Jason, welcome to The Gist. Good morning, Mike. Good to be here. Yes. So... They say not to start with a two-part question, but I must, which is this. Akunzada, is he really the leader and is he really real? Well, I, I think to answer, I guess, your second part first, he, he is really real. Um, and you know, he is currently the formal head of the, the Taliban uh, organization and in that role, the, the leading figure uh, in the, the, the current Taliban uh, governance structure, which has largely remained in caretaker form uh, since taking over uh, last uh, fall, nearly a year ago, that doesn't necessarily mean that he is ruling as a uh, you know, singular figure. Um, but, but yes, he, I think he, it's fair to say he does remain as their you know, formal head of government, if not necessarily the ruling figure of the, the movement. So the Taliban uh, enjoyed driving the United States out of their land. Um, they wanted, they, you know, fired their Kalashnikovs in the air in celebration when the U.S. left. But do they really want to run a country? As I understand what their philosophy is, it mostly predates the very concept of nation state. So do they just want to be the biggest warlord or do they want to go to the UN and have a flag and have people from hundreds and hundreds of miles away from Kabul recognize them as their leader? So I think this is part of the uh, some of the inherent contradictions in, in their ethos, because I think when you look even back to the 1990s, when they first attained power, I think one of the underappreciated aspects of the Taliban is that they do crave 
uh, international recognition that they are indeed, you know, the the formal rulers uh, of Afghanistan, and they do want that seat at the UN um, and that recognition globally, and they've continued to pursue it here in the last year. However, it, it's also apparent, as you said, that you know the priority for them is to be individually in control of Afghanistan, not necessarily to uh, run a functioning bureaucratic state. You know, one does not elevate through the, the ranks of the Taliban by demonstrating, you know, bureauc- bureaucratic acumen. Um, so it's all, you know, it's, it's almost this sort of unfortunate side requirement of being the dominant political force is that you also have to actually govern. And we've seen that certainly um, being a struggle here in the last year. So they had a period up until 2001 when they were governing. Is there any indication? It's very hard, I know, to figure out what their thinking is. But is there any indication that they learned from that and that they said things like, well, we want to propagate the return of the caliphate and enforce very strict uh, version of Sharia law, but also we know we have to keep the electricity on and have functioning water filtration plants. I mean, do they even believe that? Do they know that that is part of their remit? So I think that they're, again, sort of caught between this um, need to maintain their bona fides as this, you know, fundamentalist Islamic movement that is adhering to, you know, the strictest interpretation of, of Sharia law. Um, they have, you know, obviously embraced certain things from from the 1990s that they, you know, things like, you know, modern technology and the use of the computer and the Internet. And they've actually you know, used it very well um, to their benefit. Um, but you're seeing over time here in this most recent period, you know, some of those uh, beliefs from the 1990s are starting. You know, again, we're talking about, you know, uh, the lack of, of education for uh, girls and women. We're talking about increasingly restrictive codes about, you know, public dress and and music and things like that, where um, it has hasn't been a, uh, you know, an overnight flip of the switch since they came into power. Um, but you're seeing this again, sort of begrudging acknowledgement that they do have to maintain some level of, of you know, government services and governance while also trying to um, um, push some of the more conservative views that have sort of, you know, allowed them to, to gain their, their current status, which in their mind is, is, you know, maintaining that those bona fides. Is there an indication they'll be able to pull that off? Well, again, it, it, this is uh, sort of been the, you know, the proverbial, you know, frog boiling in the pot scenario where it, it's just sort of been, there seem to be sort of persistently playing with the temperature a bit to keep the water, you know, very warm, uh, w- without going over. And what I mean by that is that they're still making moves to, to try to uh, obtain some level of international recognition. You know, they've had more assertive discussions with people like the Chinese and the Russians and, and other regional actors, um, while uh, I think struggling to come to some sort of a consensus within the organization on some of these other social issues that they know um, one that they have to adhere to, but two that it hurts their chances of of attaining that that recognition. So um, you, you're they're just trying to find this balance and and struggling to do it. Right, right. So we're talking about the oppression of women that would keep them from being in the UN. I'm talking about, or I'm thinking about 
there is a status of countries where we call them a failed state, you know, maybe Hades in that position. But it's usually because something went wrong and someone at least tried and maybe the things that they were trying was, okay, two thirds of all the government coffers flow to me and my friends, but maybe with the rest of the third, we buy off enough people or provide enough services that it's not a failed state. I don't know if you would say that the Taliban inherited a failed state, but I guess my question is, to what extent are they committed to not have Afghanistan be a failed state? Well, in my estimation, their priority number one, again, is to maintain their coherence as an organization and and remain in, in power. You know, after that, I think there is some... Um, general willingness or, or, or uh, desire to, again, be part of the, you know, the global community as much on their terms as possible. And again, that's where you have mm-hmm. these, these inherent contradictions. So one of the big issues that, that remains unresolved is the status of the, uh, the Afghan National Bank, which was after the Taliban took over um, you know, the U.S. had, had a bulk of the funding. It's five to seven billion dollars that was essentially frozen. Um, and the, the bank has not been permitted to to reestablish itself. So if you don't have a functioning national bank, you're, you're not able to have a, a, a currency or, or a functioning economy. Um, and, and right now, they're basically a, a subsistence nation that is relying on somewhat you know, these loopholes that provide international uh, donors to help provide for some of the health care and, and food and water needs. To me, that is the largest um, unresolved issue that will determine the degree to which uh, the Afghan state is uh, going to be able to to function with more independence and and you know even start that first step of being part of the the international community. So five to seven billion is that how much you said? Yes. Okay. So in the U.S., that's two football stadia. SoFi Stadium plus uh, MetLife, Cowboy Stadium, whatever you want to call it. How much, how important is that to Afghanistan? What percentage of their national budget does that represent? Yes. I mean, that without, so it's, it's the, you know, provision of that funding to the Afghan state, but, but the bigger picture issue here is, is more having a central bank, again, that allows you to maintain a functioning currency that supports a, a domestic economy in the country that then opens up the opportunities for for trade and, and other. So it's it's less about, okay, this money, where is it going to go and, and how is it going to be allocated to help the Afghans, of, of which there are still concerns because one of the big things is every indication, and they've already started to do it, that the Taliban will use aid and funds to you know, support their followers and their adherents while punishing you know those that that are, are, are not supportive of, of their reign, which again is something that goes back to the, their rule in the 1990s. So without getting into the details of how, to, how best to spend five to $7 billion uh, in Afghanistan, the bigger question is to what extent can there be some semblance of a, a functioning national bank that is allowing a somewhat of a functioning economy in Afghanistan without uh, benefiting the Taliban politically? And therein lies the, the big question. Just keep in mind that, according to what I've read, the national budget for the fiscal year is $2.6 billion. So it's two or three times the, the annual budget for the whole country. And that estimate was before maybe inflation took place, so it might be even more. Okay, that said, 
If the Taliban were to be recognized internationally, I know a stumbling block is their recognition of women, women's rights, but will their garnering the status of participants on the international stage flow through the Chinese? Do you think they're, as I look at it, they're the country, the important country, most incentivized to welcome them as a non-pariah nation? So that that's a good question. So when the the you know, previous Afghan government fell and the Taliban rose to power, I think the the, the Chinese and the Russians uh, among the the major stakeholders uh, were the most assertive in seeing an opportunity there to uh, develop a relationship with the Taliban government that they were overall unable to uh, over twenty years with the, the government that was you know largely Western backed and supported. That being said, I think there's a there's been reluctance on the Chinese part, you know, in terms of you know women's rights and human rights. You know, needless to say, the Chinese are not as um, concerned with those things, but they are very concerned with the the threat of Islamic extremism coming out of Afghanistan and threatening, you know, their Western uh, uh, parts of the country uh, where they do have you know a Muslim minority in the in the Uyghurs, and I think there is where they were hoping to leverage uh, a better relationship with the Taliban, but have been reluctant to be and a Chinese expert just a, a few months ago stated bluntly that the, you know, China will not be the first country to recognize the Taliban government. Mm-hmm. If they do so, it'll be in uh, some sort of a coordinated effort with the Russians, with the Iranians. And I think largely because they've uh, shown to be unwilling or unable to tamp down the extremist threat uh, from Afghanistan uh, to the extent that that they feel comfortable proceeding with a more elevated status in the relationship. Now that NATO is out of Afghanistan, isn't most of Russia's incentive to recognize Afghanistan gone? Um, I think that was certainly a, a, a big part of you know Russia's increasingly meddlesome uh, sort of actions in Afghanistan and their willingness to find way new ways to support Taliban actions in Afghanistan, even though they spent much of the 90s uh, confronting the Taliban through through some of their other proxies. Um, so, uh, you know, yes, uh, that, you know, has probably in, in other events, uh, needless to say, Ukraine and, and other places has probably diverted some Russian attention. But I think that there's also a broader geopolitical question here of, okay, well, if we're not engaged in Afghanistan and if we're not talking to this government, um, what might you know, China be doing and what, what might that be you know, doing to our opportunity? So I think you know, Russia remains engaged um, and, again, do have concerns about the movement of heroin and, and other uh, drugs through Central Asia into Russia. They do have uh, worries about the extremist element there. So while they might not be as motivated to be playing a meddlesome uh, role in, in Afghanistan, I, I think there remains uh, incentive to re- stay engaged there. What do we make of the assassination of Al uh, Zawahiri? The fact that he was there and had a home in Kabul, but also the fact that the United States did take him out um, and may- may- maybe without too many, uh, too much blowback. Mm-hmm. Well, I think first and foremost, it it and, and this is you know was a, a really uh, a bad development for the Taliban as an organization who has been saying now for a year that they do not support the presence of, of terrorist organizations in Afghanistan and you know will not allow Afghanistan to be used as the starting point of a terrorist attack outside of its country, which has already been been shown to be false with 
with Pakistan in, in other ways. But so so what you find here is that, you know, that at a macro level, uh, which is not surprising, but but it, it demonstrates that that was not at all the case. But it also shows, I think, within the Taliban movement that, as I said at the outset, you know, they have maintained, you know, fairly, you know, uh, impressive cohesion as an organization throughout the last couple of decades. But they are comprised of, you know, various uh, subgroups and, and powerful players and entities. And what we found in the in the uh, the recent strike on Zawahiri was that, you know, he was staying in a home uh, that was currently owned by Siraj Haqqani, who is now the, the acting uh, Minister of Interior, um, you know, scion to the famous you know, Haqqani network that has yep. you know, operated in eastern Afghanistan, western Pakistan for, for decades. A guy, um, a guy with the blood of thousands of Americans or at least hundreds of yes. Americans on his hands. Yeah, Ab- absolutely. Um, and, and that this was being done likely without the, uh, you know, knowledge or, or certainly approval of some of these other, um, you know, uh, uh, more, uh, established, uh, entities within the Taliban movement based in the, in Kandahar and, and other parts of the, the country. So it, it shows that again, while, you know, politically they've, they've maintained, you know, co- cohesion, particularly in the context of Afghanistan, there are still, uh, uh, I think different factions within the organization that are are not completely on the same page. Yeah. Jason Campbell is a policy researcher who studies international security, counterinsurgency, intelligence, and measuring progress in post-conflict reconstruction. He served as country director for Afghanistan in the office of the Secretary of Defense for Policy. He is a researcher at the RAND Corporation. Thank you so much, Jason. My pleasure, Mike. Thanks for having me. And now the spiel. NBC conducted a poll a couple weeks ago where they asked participants the number one problem in this country. Not surprising, they and all other polling organizations do this. The last time they asked this poll, here were the top concerns. Mid 2022, cost of living one, jobs and economy two, voting rights and election integrity three. Abortion came in fourth. A different pollster that NBC works with asked the same question a month ago. Inflation one, gas prices two, the economy nine, everyday bills and groceries. This is the same thing, by the way. That was at 6%, abortion to 5%. Gallup asked the same poll. Their grab bag of questions had economic issues one. Then the government slash poor leadership showed up. Uh, 8% said abortion, 6% said the courts or the legal system. Only this time around, NBC had an entirely new biggest problem, one that's never showed up before. Here's Chuck Todd asking a guest about it. And for the first time ever, when asked what is the most important issue facing this country, the top answer was not an economic issue. It was threats to the democracy, higher than cost of living, or jobs, or guns, or even abortion. I call poor poll. Threats to democracy can mean to say, a MAGA document seizures was our 9-11 type crowd. 
The threats could be the Justice Department and the deep state running wild. To the investigators on the January 6th committee and those really worried about their findings, it probably means will Republicans ever respect unfavorable election results. Could also mean something like foreign terrorists or lack of or too much ballot access or corruption in office. There are no cross tabs on this poll. I can't see what the breakdown was among those saying it was the number one threat by partisan group, but I do think it's a little too Rorschach-ish and a little too tempting to choose. I mean, how could any good civically-minded citizen really say threats to democracy isn't quite important? But when asked about it, Kentucky Republican Congressman Andy Barr did not bite on Meet the Press. Good for him. On the substance of what he thought the big issue was, well, only so-so for him. What I'm saying is that Republicans are going to win this election because we're laser focused on what the American people actually care about. And that is the rising price of gas, the rising price of groceries, the fact that we can't find baby formula on the shelves, the crime crisis in this country. That's a grab bag of real problems, improving problems and non-problems. Gas prices are falling. Inflation, who knows? Maybe it'll be up by Wednesday. Infant formula, they were in the stores when I was there this weekend. Statistics show that 25% of the stock of infant formula has returned. But... Given an inch, Barr couldn't help himself by indulging in talking points only a committed Republican could love. Like this, his anti-IRS sentiment. The nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office looking at this legislation, this reconciliation bill, this Inflation Expansion Act, says that $20 billion of these audits are going to come at the expense of low- and middle-income Americans. Well, I mean, we've just got to let middle-income tax cheats get away with it, right? They're middle-income. Americans look really favorably on poor people who are snookering the government. Also, the entirety of revenues generated from enforcement projects to be $204 billion. So, if $20 billion of that comes from middle-income earners, defined, by the way, as under $400,000 a year, I don't know how many truly informed people about the issue will be swayed. And now here's Barr's dismissal of democracy as a major driver in this next election. I am skeptical, as you heard me say, if it's the number one issue on voters' mind or what it means really as a polling question, but Barr seems unskeptical about his highly suspect personal polling methods. And there is a massive, massive disconnect between the priorities of politicians in Washington and the concerns of the American people. I've been back in my district uh, in urban Kentucky, Mount Sterling, Kentucky, in, in Harrodsburg, Kentucky, Richmond, Kentucky over the last several weeks. And not once, not once have any of my constituents, Republican or Democrat, talked about Uh, the 2020 election, January 6th, the committee in Washington, or any of these issues. Really? In Mount Sterling, Kentucky, Montgomery County, where 28.3% of the people voted Democrat in the last presidential election, no one's coming up to a Republican talking about January 6th. In Harrodsburg, Mercer County, Kentucky, where 25.8% of the people voted Democrat, that minority of people aren't coming up to you to talk about an issue that you don't care about. Now, to be fair, Barr was not one of the 147 Republicans who voted to overturn the election results, but come on. It's just like no one's going up to Adriano Esplanade in the Bronx and complaining about illegal immigration doesn't mean Americans aren't concerned about illegal immigration, just means you don't go up to that guy with those issues, same with bar and democracy. Over on CNN, David Urban was advising his fellow Republicans in the same manner as Barr talk 
about the economy, jobs and inflation. If Republicans stick to the issues that they that they know and win on. They're going to do very, very well. If they're fighting meme wars. Right. If you're going to fight a meme war about um, silly you know, social media posts and that's what's happening, the Democrats are being able to dictate the terms of these races. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they're going to win. Republicans and need I to get back and talk about issues. Urban's right, but it's just not as compelling as it once was. Despite all the problems that an incumbent president's party usually faces in the midterms, and despite very poor approval ratings for this president and a bad economy, or at least terrible out-of-control inflation, what looked atrocious in June looks merely quite bad in late August, or maybe just bad. And I do wonder about the wisdom of pounding the issue of gas prices. Because you know what happens when gas prices go up a lot? People drive less and the market responds by gas prices coming down. Let's look at some past election year gas prices. June 2008, gas averaged $4.10 a gallon. It was the last high of the last 20 years before the recent high just a couple months ago. But by November of 2008, gas was down to 2000 sorry. Gas was down to $2.28 a gallon. June 2014, gas hit $3.76 a gallon. By the election, it was under $3. The out party will always blame the president for gas prices. But Republicans know the law of supply and demand. They know that prices eventually fall just as they rose. Then again, in 2014, when gas prices fell, Republicans picked up a lot of seats. It's just too tempting an argument to soft pedal. The midterms will be won or lost, how midterms usually are won or lost, the normal dynamics. Americans just like to change things up, and people aren't particularly astute when it comes to the logical apportionment of blame. But Republicans need to help themselves in every way they can if they want to win. And they haven't helped themselves. Hello, Herschel Walker, Kerry Lake, and Dr. Oz. They need to at least talk about issues where voters really do care, which means not championing the idea of inefficient tax collection and maybe not talking so much about gas. Certainly not jobs. Jobs are going gangbusters. And that's my advice for them. And no one, absolutely no one, is coming up to me giving me better advice on what Republicans need to say to win the midterms. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the Just Assistant Producer, and Joel Patterson is the Senior Producer. As COO of Peachfish Productions, Michelle Pasca feels she has to warn the public not to listen to too many shows which feature my singing. The Gist is produced in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash the gist. Oopru, jeeperu, dupru. Thanks for listening.